you guys ever have shared, tried to share your faith with people, tried to share Jesus with people, you may hear the praise, uh, well, that's good for you, that's your truth, but I have my truth. You may hear this phrase as you are trying to share Jesus uh, with people. And these people genuinely, you know, they're trying to be genuine. They're, they're trying to allow you to believe what you believe while disagreeing with you. That's basically what the phrase is saying. They're saying, I disagree with you. That's okay. You believe what you want to believe. I want to believe what I want to believe. And uh, it's funny because they, they use the phrase truth in most instances. That's your truth, but this is my truth. Now, you kind of run into a bit of an issue because what if those two truths disagree with each other? Which truth is right? How can you know that your viewpoint, your understanding of the Lord, your understanding of God is the right understanding? Even harder question, how can we know right things about God? Whose idea is correct? And Christianity is unique among the religions because it not only offers you, well, it claims to offer you correct beliefs and ideas about God, but it offers you a personal relationship with God as well. Not only do you know correct facts about God, this is the claim that Christianity makes, but also that you can know God. Now, to know God, know things about one God is one thing. Sorry, to know things about God is one thing. But to actually know God and be known by Him, two separate things, two very different things. You can know all sorts of things about God. You can decide what you want to believe about God, what you think God is, how you relate to God. You can feel like that. But what will it profit you if you craft God into your own image? If your God starts to look a lot like you and not like the God we find in Scripture, and so, if your God doesn't challenge you, it doesn't offend you, it doesn't cause you to, to change in certain areas, if the God that you believe in uh, always is super pumped about the things you've got going on and about the stuff that's going on in your life and is always on board with your viewpoints and your belief systems, maybe you've crafted your own God. Maybe your God isn't uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Tim Keller says this, he says, Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or marriage, will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination? So how can you know God? More importantly, how can you know God personally? It's one thing to hear about him in a sermon, it's another thing to know him. And our text here is going to show us an important thing, because it's going to show us how we can know God truly, genuinely, authentically, most importantly, salvifically. How do we know that we know God in a way that saves us? So if you're a Christian here today, this text is going to show you how you can know God more. If you don't know Jesus, this text is going to show you how you can know God. So let's go first, uh, uh, sorry, Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 18. That's also going to come up on the screen for us. Ephesians 1, 15 to 18. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart in hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is God's word. For the last uh, three weeks, we've seen Paul talk about the word of the Father, the Spirit, and the Son in how we come to faith. That the Father predestines us, calls us before the foundation of the world to Him, that the Son redeems us in His blood, and that the Spirit is the down payment, the guarantee that we are saved. And this has been an awesome Trinitarian work of salvation. All members of the Godhead are involved when a person comes from death to life in Jesus. We saw that in the Westminster Catechism of Faith, it says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And we saw that glory is what God gets when He saves. When God comes in and saves someone, glory, uh, He brings glory to Himself. Why? Because He shows Himself to be a just, merciful, kind, and gracious God. And Paul immediately, after this, uh, after all we've been going through over the last three weeks, jumps into thanksgiving. He jumps into thanksgiving. First, because the church that Paul has helped plant has been doing really, really well. He has heard that they have a strong faith in Jesus, and that that faith has resulted in love. Not only were they strong in Jesus, not only did they believe in Jesus, but they grew in their love for Jesus. And that's what Paul is stoked about, because he helped plant this church. You remember, we went through it at the start, how Paul came into this town, and there were just a few followers of John the Baptist, you remember that? And then Paul comes in and he says, you guys need to be baptized into Jesus, not into the baptism of John. And then the Holy Spirit came upon them, and the church began in Ephesus. And Paul worked hard. He labored long with these people. He went into the synagogues and he shared Jesus with them. And he was consistent in the way that he was out reaching the people. And then when they kicked him out of the synagogue, did Paul hang up his boots? No, he went out into the streets and he engaged with all the Gentiles. And now we have a flourishing church. Now, I, uh, when I was in Sydney, I ran this youth group. And that thing was kind of like my baby. Uh, I basically seen it grow. I'd seen so many young people come to know Jesus. I'd seen them grow in their faith. And then the time came when I was going to move to Newcastle, and that meant I had to hand this uh, youth group over to someone else to lead. Now, I thought at the start it was going to be okay, especially because I was handing over to my mate Sam. You guys may have met him, my Canadian mate Sam. Solid dude, lovely, loves the Lord. I was going to hand it over to him. Oh, man, it was hard. <laughs> It was hard to give it to him, to, to hand over that leadership, because that youth group had sort of become my baby. And uh, every time I'd hang out with Sam, my first question to him would be, oh, how's the youth group going? What's going on with the youth group? I really wanted to know what was going on there. And Sam would always tell me, yeah, man, it's going great. And he's like Canadian accent. And uh, he was loving it. And he would always had really good things to say. And they were continuing and growing stronger in their faith. And that was like... Oh, that was so good to hear. I love that. To know that Jesus' work was continuing. They didn't need me. I, you know, I was nothing. Jesus was the one who was doing the work then. And that was great. And I love that. And I can kind of understand what Paul's saying here. He's stoked to hear that the Ephesians are still going strong. The faith is still advancing. 
They're growing in love to one another, and that's how Paul knows that the faith, their faith is growing. Because love is being produced. Real true faith in Jesus will not only move you to greater trust in Jesus, but greater acts of love. Love follows faith. It follows faith around. If faith is real, then love will show itself. And so these guys are authentically living out their faith in Jesus, and the Ephesian church is full of love, and Paul remembers this, because if you remember in Acts 20, Paul's about to leave, and he's about to leave the Ephesians, and the Ephesian elders come around him, and uh, he says to them, you're never going to see my face again. I'm going to get on this boat, they're going to take me to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem he's going to get arrested and brought to Rome. And he says to them, I'm probably never going to see you, well, not probably, I will never see you again. And they all basically just sit there crying, knowing that they're not going to be able to see Paul again. Now you can't read that passage and conclude anything other than they love Paul, and Paul loves them. And Paul knows that he's experienced the love that's in the church of Ephesus. The goodbyes are hard. Goodbyes are very hard, especially hard when you love someone and you love them deeply. And so Paul knows that kind of love himself. He knows, and I'm sure it's a comfort to him, knowing that their love is continuing, that their faith is growing, that their love for each other is growing, that their church is growing. And it's hard, as I said, for a person to hand over ministry, but Paul is stoked to see that this is happening. And the letter says that he doesn't cease in praying for them. Notice that. He says, I've not ceased. Ephesians uh, 1, 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul doesn't cease praying for them. The only thing that will drive a man or a woman to pray like that is love. It's love. Paul experienced that kind of love in Ephesus. He loved them, they loved him. And it's a good point consider because if you are moved for prayer for your church, for the body that's around you, for your family, probably because there's not much love in your life. When I am moved to prayerlessness, well not moved to prayerlessness, when I'm involved in prayerlessness, when my life isn't marked by prayer, when I'm not involved by prayer, it's probably because everything's about me. I love myself in those moments and I care more about myself I want to make sure that I'm, you know, I'm comforted, that things are going well in my life, that I'm working towards my goals. When I'm self-centered and everything's caught up in my life, do you think I'm praying for other people? Not really, because I'm not really caring about anyone else. I don't really love anyone else in those moments. It's all about me. It's, it's me and my sinfulness and trying to put myself forward. It's a, for me to pray like this, I need to get out of my own bubble. I need to get out of my own self-centeredness, my own selfishness. Because that's what traps us in prayerlessness. Because why would you pray for someone if you don't love them? Why would you care what happens to them if you, uh, if you don't love them? And that's, just, that's a fascinating reality, but a sad reality. And this is what Paul inadvertently is, is sort of showing us, that his love for the church moves him to pray. And the flip side of that coin is, if he didn't love that church, I guarantee you he would not be ceaselessly praying for them. And so how, how are our prayer lives? How do we go with our prayer? Are we caught up in our own world? So caught up in our own world, so self-centered, so 
get us caught in our own goals and ambitions and drive, how much do we labor in prayer for others? But Paul has content that he wants to share. You know when someone might tell you something bad's happened in their life, and you're like, oh, I'll pray for you, bro. I'll pray for you, sis. But then you like, don't pray for them. It's just kind of a way to get out of that awkward conversation. Paul's not like that right here. He's like, I am not ceasing to pray for you. And in fact, I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm praying. This is exactly the content of my prayers, the things that I'm trying to pray for you. So he goes on to say, he's not hitting them with vague promises. He's going to tell them what he wants from God. His prayers are particular and pointed. He wants God to do a work in the church, and that particular work is that people would know Jesus. Both people coming to faith and people growing in their knowledge of the Lord. That's in verse 17. This is his content. But the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints. Now for a lot of Jesus, uh, sorry, for a lot of people, knowing Jesus is like a celebrity thing. What do I mean? Well, think of your favourite celebrity. It could be like a footy player, it could be an actress, an actor, it could be, um, you know, someone that's the head of their field. It might even be like a pastor or a theologian. Um, you might actually have like a really impressive knowledge about them. Now, if you're like a theology nerd like me, your hero might be a theologian, and uh, I've got a few, but probably no one more than C.S. Lewis. If you've been around this church long enough, you've heard C.S. Lewis quoted probably almost every single sermon. Because I love the guy. I read all of his books, I've read so much of his stuff, I can't get enough of it. I remember just moments on my bed reading like his book, Me Christianity, and just a light bulb coming on, night after night in my head, pointing me to Jesus, pointing me away from my sin, showing me my sinfulness. I remember the moment I wrote, I read his chapter called The Great Sin, talking about pride and how pride gets like eats away at our relationship with God and eats away at our relationship with others. And I remember just being like, wow, that is so true. I'm like the most prideful, arrogant dude I know. And it changed my life then and there, that passage. And it reminds me, even still to this day, you know, don't be an idiot, don't be arrogant, don't think you're the greatest, because that in Paul, uh, sorry, in C.S. Lewis's mind was the great sin. And so I understand a lot about him. I've read his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. I feel like I have, like, I know him. Like, I've, I've read his experience when he went to school, when he went to World War One. I. I remember all the stuff that was going on in his life, how he came to faith and me being like, wow. I like the same person. And I feel like I, I know him. Like, I feel like I know him really well. Do I actually know him? Well, no, he's dead. Can't possibly know him. He died in 1963. Rather off the top of my head, I say, you know, I know probably too much about C.S. Lewis. I have a lot of respect for Lewis. My life has changed because of C.S. Lewis. But I don't know him. I don't know the man. Why am I telling you this? A lot of Christians react and relate to Jesus like that, like what I just said. My relationship with C.S. Lewis is what a lot of Christians' relationship with Jesus is like. They have a lot of time for Jesus. Boy, where would they be without him? They take a lot of things on board that he says. They even change their lives on the basis of what Jesus says. Do they know him? Do 
they know Jesus. Jesus is not someone that you just read and take his advice on. He's your king. He's your Lord. He's the Lord of the entire universe. You bow down to him. You give him your life. Jesus is not just another author that shows you how to live your life better. He's your king. You come before his throne in adoration and devotion and thanksgiving. There is a big difference between knowing things about Jesus and knowing Jesus. But even more crucial question is, does Jesus know you? Does Jesus know you? And Paul is well aware of this in this text and the importance of this, because as he says, he wants the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now that word knowing comes up all the time in the Bible. It's much deeper than just knowing things about someone. How do I know that? Well, at the start, when Adam and Eve are there, it says Adam knew Eve and she conceived before a child. What do you think that knowing meant? The knowing in the Hebrew terms is much deeper than facts, than just knowing things about something. It's genuinely understanding, genuinely knowing something. And Paul, he wants the Ephesian church to be given the Holy Spirit so that wisdom and revelation may come to them in the knowledge of Jesus. Why would he say that? At first glance, it seems that he may be implying that the church doesn't have the Spirit. That if he wants the Spirit to come to them, that they may not actually have the Holy Spirit. Because why ask for God for the Spirit if they don't have it? It's a strange phrase, especially because he commends them for their faith. Now, I don't think Paul is praying that they would receive the Holy Spirit, because I think that they are saved. And that the Holy Spirit is already at work with them. And why do I think that? Because in the next passage, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That phrase, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. The phrase is in the perfect tense in Greek, and that means it's something that had already been accomplished. That that work that the Spirit has done, enlightening us, enlightening our, the eyes of our hearts, has already been done and Paul acknowledges that. So what he's talking about here is not them receiving the Spirit for the first time. What is he talking about? Friends, you can have the Spirit of God and still be very fleshly. What do I mean? You can be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and live in sin. Not in sin, as in in the flesh and not in the Spirit, but you can still have sin in your life and you can still struggle with sin. And I don't know what it is for you. Do you struggle with lust, with anger, self-pity, self-control, or even just laziness and apathy towards God? Know this, you don't have to stay that way. You don't have to stay that way. You don't have to sin. So many Christians have no idea that they have the power to kill sin in their lives, and that power comes from the Spirit. As Joan Owen uh, famously said, he said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Good phrase. Uh, Tyler wears a shirt of it around, if you guys know Tyler. I kind of want to get a shirt of that too, although it would be interesting conversations around about it. But, um, <laughs> be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. What a, it's a good quote. And Paul knows that the only remedy for sin is that they know Jesus more. A lot of people think, just stop doing it. If you've got sin in your life, now's the time. You're going to stop it. Here's some resolutions. You've set it all out. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. 
living a life without sin, how is that going for you? I don't know, for me, not very well. But when I'm killing it, when I'm doing really well, when sin is being killed in my life, it's not because I've been working extra hard, it's because I've been knowing Jesus more. And I've been just so full of Jesus and the knowledge of Him. Man, sin stinks. It's got a gross smell when you know Jesus well. But man, when you are struggling and you're in the valley, sin has a sweet smell to you all of a sudden. Because you are far away from Jesus. So the Holy Spirit gives you the wisdom and understanding you need to know Jesus better. The word revelation here, it means something revealed to you. It means something revealed to you. If you're struggling, if you're in a dark place spiritually, the remedy is very specific from Paul. His prayer for the Ephesians, and, and coincidentally now my prayer for the church, is going to steal that straight from Paul, is that the Spirit would bring wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. That's what we want. Wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. We need more of Jesus, not less. There's no such thing as you can have too much of Jesus. If someone says that this church has too much of Jesus, that's a compliment. Take it, take it on board. You're in the right place. That's a good thing. So we need more of Jesus. To all aspects of our life, we don't need to push him away. That means you need to give Jesus ownership of your life. Ownership of your life. You need to be saturated in him. How have you gone with that? Do you willingly give those sins and those hopes and those idols to Jesus, or do you struggle? Do you struggle knowing that he's better than your sin? How do you go with that? Comes in all sorts of forms. It might be an addiction to something that you know you shouldn't be doing. It could be a romance that you know you shouldn't be involved in. A career that's destroying you spiritually and leaving you in a dark place. Dark thoughts, anxiety that trap you in self pity and guilt. What would it look like if you grabbed those things and gave them to Jesus? What would that look like to give Him ownership? those things. Friends, ask the question again, do we know Jesus or has life leached away at your relationship with him? Hear me, Paul is not, does not, doesn't mean knowledge in the sense of facts. I already said that before, but he doesn't mean that the Spirit's going to come along and give you facts about Jesus. He doesn't come along and just going to say, this is some more stuff for you to believe about Jesus. No, this is stuff for your heart. This is stuff for something deeper than just your mind getting facts. So if you're anxious and worried, if you're like freaking out right now, thinking, oh man, I don't even know if I know Jesus anymore, that could be a good thing, that could be a bad thing, but we're going to get into our next passage, uh, verse 18. Oh, sorry, our next verse. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Oh, that's such a beautiful phrase. The eyes of your heart enlightened. Kind of gives me goosebumps, that phrase. In the Jewish culture, the heart is the seat of understanding. It's the center of your personality. The reason I can say confidently that knowing Jesus is more than knowing facts is because of this verse right here. Because the heart 
whenever you hear that phrase in the Bible, is not just what you think. It's not just what you think. It's what you really believe deep down. It's what you really believe deep down. And then when you dig deep into your heart, what do you believe deep down? Well, the dark place. <laughs> it's a dark place. Some people say it all the time. They'll be like, just follow your heart. Now, that is like the worst advice anyone could ever give you. Do not follow your heart, no matter what. Uh, they're trying to help you. Like, I get that. They're trying to help you make a good decision. But that is the worst advice you can give a person. Do not follow your heart. The heart has no idea what it wants. It's got absolutely no idea what it wants. And the Bible, notice, it's not a big fan of the heart. I know if you've read passages that the Bible has about the heart, but man, they're not good. They're not good at all. Uh, Jeremiah absolutely slams the human heart. Verse Jeremiah 17, 9. I'll get that up for you. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Man, don't even try to understand your heart. It doesn't even understand itself. The heart is deceitful. If anyone says to you, just do what your heart tells you, I want this verse memorized. I want this, like, in your life. To be like... I appreciate the advice, but that is terrible advice because the things my heart wants, oh man, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want those things. I don't want those things. I'd rather follow God, to be honest. I'd rather what God wants for my life, not my heart, because if my heart had its way, my life would be a wreck. If my heart had its way, I'd be the most insufferable person that you could possibly imagine. But praise be to Jesus that Jesus had his way in my life and not my heart. Because, man, I, I feel that passage. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, desperately wicked. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. That's why Paul says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. While our hearts are in darkness, while they wander in darkness and can't see, they're pretty much useless. They're deceitful. They're not helpful at all. They don't know the way. The Bible says that our hearts are wicked. And that's probably an understatement, if anything. So check this. Something amazing happens when salvation comes. I talked about it in our uh, communion message. Light shines into darkness. Stone is made flesh. Death is made for life. John 1.9 says this. Talking about Jesus, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. When Jesus came into the darkness and the brokenness of this world, he brought in the light, and the light shone into the darkness, and the light shines into the hearts of those that believe in him and trust in him. And my youth group is memorizing this one, 1 Peter 2 9, the end of it, that God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you want to know who God is, you, he has to reveal himself to you, he has to come into your life. Not the other way around. He has to come into your life. And it's an amazing moment, the moment that you're saved, when God reveals himself to you, and your relationship with him begins. Amazing moment. Think back to that time when the lights came on, when that light shone into the darkness, and you saw Jesus for who he was. That was a glorious moment, wasn't it? I remember that moment in my life. Really weird moment. Um... I basically just knew it was all true. I've done so much looking, so much researching into it, and then God just met me, and then the lights went on in my life, and I realized, man, I'm a wretched sinner, and I'm in big trouble. But God is a gracious Savior. 
and he'd love to have more sympathy. And I remember, I'm not really a crier, I don't really cry that much, but I was just like uncontrollably crying at my sin for like two hours. It was like a weird experience, but that was when God came in my life, the light came on, and all of a sudden things were different. I don't know what it was like for you, some people it may have just been a slow process growing up in a Christian home, and then at some point the light came on and you can't quite pinpoint it. The important thing is that the lights are on. That's the important thing. The important thing is that the light is shining. So if you're worried that you don't know God, you need to seek Him. Jeremiah 29, 13 says this. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Notice that heart comes up again. That means deep down, seek Him. Not superficially, not trying to find out facts about him or trying to find out ways to disprove him, that's not a way to find God. Find, try to find him with your heart, with all your heart, with the deepest beliefs about yourself. Try to find him. Uh, Luke eleven thirteen says this. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you are afraid that you don't know Jesus, Seek, you will find. Now, if you're a Christian, many of us Christians, you have found God. The lights have come on. But Paul here is talking to the Ephesian church, and he has he's talking particularly to Christians. And he's saying, Yeah, you found God, but the command is still similar. Keep searching. Keep growing. You need more of Jesus. There is never a point in your life when you don't need more of Jesus. And that's by the Spirit. So remember that. Pray it with the Spirit, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, and strive to live a holy and blameless life. Real joy, peace, contentment, through all the trials, all the sorrows that you're facing in your life, are yours if you do this. God will work powerfully through you. Pray ceaselessly that this will happen. Pray for this church that it will happen. My hope for this church is that every week we get more of Jesus. That is what we need more than anything else. More than good music, more than good preaching. We need more Jesus. And so how do we go with that? Paul has some application for us. First answer. This is the result of the prayer. You may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now you belong to something different if you're a Christian. You belong to something different than this world. You're a member of the household of God. It says here that you're a saint. We already talked about that one, how weird it is to think of yourself as a saint. But yes, if you're a Christian, you're a saint. Now don't go around asking people to call you saint, so-and-so. That's weird. I don't, I'm not going to do it. But you are a saint. And the promise here, remember last week, is the inheritance that we receive. Both in this age and in the age to come. The Spirit is given to us as a down payment of our inheritance. That means you've received some of it now. You receive a down payment, that means you've received some of the payment early, beforehand, your inheritance. Some of it you've gotten right now, if you're a Christian, 
And that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is coming to your life. Now, if you want more of Jesus, that is the best way to do it. Start with the Spirit that is indwelling you and pray that the Spirit would give you more wisdom and knowledge and revelation and to know the hope. Know the hope. Deep down, know the hope. Believe the hope at, the, at your heart. I don't mean get right viewpoints of it. I don't mean make like a list, a bullet, like a bullet point list and go, oh yeah, that's true. I mean really believe it. What does it look like to really believe these things? Because that's what it means to know these things when the Bible says that. That's what it means. Deep down, believe. I said at the start, my overview message, that the letter of Ephesians is about the riches of God. And I told you guys to come hungry every week, didn't I? Now I hope that these passages have left you feeling fed. Have left you feeling like you are a wealthy person because of the glorious inheritance that Jesus has given you. So we have a new home, the church, the saints, the inheritance. We receive it. You receive an inheritance. But notice, as a community. And as an individual. It's together. It's together. This church is a foreshadow of the community that we will have in heaven. A tiny little foreshadow. And the more that we go closer and closer to that community, the more we will foreshadow the community that is become. In the idea of inheritance we were talking about last week is reward. The reward of following Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit's salvation, the down payment, the guarantee. So, strapping up, our question when was the last time you gave yourself to heartfelt, genuine prayer? I don't mean just praying, going through the, the motions, I don't mean just saying the things you know you have to say. When was the last time you gave yourself to real? Heartfelt, genuine prayer. When have you laid your heart bare before God and asked Him to fill you with the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him? When have you wanted to know Him more? To know more deeply the hope at which He's called you to? My challenge this week set aside time. This is the most important thing you can do. Set aside time for heartfelt prayer. Lay your heart before God. Just you and God, shut the door. Speak out loud. Get to know God better. If you're not sure whether you've met God personally, 2 Corinthians 6.2 says that now is the day of salvation. Salvation has come through Jesus. There is no better time to meet God than right now. God promises to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him to pray for the Holy Spirit. If you want me to pray for you, please come talk to me. I will pray for you. This magnificent message that we see is Paul's prayer to the Ephesian church. You'll have to come back next week to hear the rest of uh, chapter 1, the rest of the prayer that he has for them. I told you to come hungry, so expect more next week as we dig into God's words. Uh, Let me pray for us. Father, we we just want to know you. Father, would you give us greater knowledge, revelation, and wisdom of Jesus? Would we know you more and more every day? Lord, I pray for my friends here that are struggling. Lord, would your spirit just break through in their life? Would light shine into darkness? 
would death be turned to life? Those that are in the valley, Lord, would you bring them out to the mountaintops? Or through the valley, show them that you are with them and that there is real joy and peace to be had. Lord, if you promise to be with us even in the toughest moments, then we know that even in those moments, you're teaching us more about yourself so that we can know you. Father, please move in this church, we pray. By the Holy Spirit, in his powerful name, Amen.